Sometime last year, I was at the New York State Museum for a teacher workshop, and it was all social studies teachers there, and we were all learning about New Netherland and a little bit of the Haudenosaunee. And there was a point where we broke out into groups, and they had young workers there who were a little older than college age. There was a, a young man there showing off beaver furs, and he was talking to a uh, female middle-aged social studies teacher, and he brought up the name Peter Minot. And the social studies teacher looked puzzled and, and eventually said, Do you mean Peter Minuet? I didn't stay to listen to the whole conversation because I wasn't part of it, and that would be rude. But I don't know whether or not they realized they were talking about the same person. I believe the social studies teacher realized she was, but the young man had never heard of the name Peter Minuet. Likely when he was trained, he was told the name Peter Minot, and having no other context than that, he just assumed that was the name of the gentleman we're talking about. So like a lot in this podcast, I don't try to give you the easy answer. I leave the questions out there for you. I leave the different variables out there for you to consider. So we have different ways to say this guy's name. So Peter Minui is one way to say it. Peter Minuet, which I'm used to. And then Peter Minot. Now, why are there different ways to say this name? Well, we're going to start right here on a, a little short biography of Peter Minuet. So Peter Minuet was a Walloon. And like we've talked about, most of the settlers in New Netherland before Peter Minuet shows up are also Walloon. It's a weird scenario, but this colony we call New Netherland is basically going to be mostly French-speaking at the time of the, you know, the late 1620s. It's mostly a French colony in terms of language. And like lots of the Walloons who were escaping the uh, persecution of Protestants by the hands of the Spanish overlords... They're, they traveled to a lot of different places, and their names kind of changed along the way, depending on who was trying to pronounce it. So his family at some point in Wallonia, part of Belgium today, probably pronounced the last name something closer to Minui or Minot, something like that. But then when he got into the Germanic countries, because he's going to settle in some German states and he's going to find his way to the Netherlands, Minuet might have been the way people pronounced his name, seeing as how the Germans would like to pronounce every letter in a word, even to this day. But how did Peter Minuet pronounce his last name in his own head? Who knows? There's no answer to that. We can't find that. There's very little biographical information on Peter Minuet, and he's a very important guy, and there's only really been, like, one attempt at making a nice, big, book-long biography of Peter Minuet, and even half of that book just deals with the ship that he uh, would be using later on. So, even in his own biography, half of it is dedicated towards a ship. That's how little information we have on this guy, although he's incredibly important. C.A. Wesslager, he was a historian, he did a lot on the history of New Sweden, which we'll get to. He's the only one to really try to pull together a decent biography on Peter Minuet, and he does the best he can with all the information he has. But Peter Minuet's life is going to be as strange and mysterious and take as many twists and turns as Henry Hudson. There's a lot of parallels there, and I don't want to ruin them for you right now. So Peter Minuet, a Walloon from Wallonia, found his way to some German states, lived there for a while, and then eventually he found his way into Holland. And eventually, he settled in the city of Utrecht. He seems to have been a family man. He took care of his uh, nephews and nieces when they lost their parents, unfortunately. And his family seems to have come from some money, not, not super wealthy, but probably more wealthy than the Walloon families, the farmers who settled in New Netherland. Uh, he trained as a diamond cutter at one point. His family seems to have owned property. His family and even distant relations seem to have had burger rights in certain cities, which means you're an upstanding citizen, you pay taxes, and you're part of the government. We'll get into that at a later time. And we have no, uh, we have no record of his education, but it seems like he trained as a diamond cutter, and yet somehow he gets a lot of navigational experience. So I imagine he went to school, although there are no existing records. He at least trained aboard ships. Because sometime in 1626, the Dutch West India Company hires him not to cut diamonds but to survey New Netherland 
to map out the riverways, to search for possible natural resources of value. And again, there's no documentation of when Minuet joined, but maybe he was sent there to do the survey specifically because of his navigational experience and his experience with diamond cutting. So maybe he knew something about gems and gemstones, precious metals, geology, or at least an early form of geology, because of course we don't have the, the set-in-stone science yet. And yes, that was a pun. So he seems to have been the perfect man for that specific job. However, if you recall our last episode on New Netherland, stuff was beginning to hit the fan, so to speak, at the time he would have shown up. Just to remind the listener, in case you didn't hear the last episode, at the point where Minuet shows up, 1626, the director of the colony is under house arrest by his own council. He's accused of stealing in one form of the, or the other, we don't know exactly how, uh, mismanagement, and he certainly did mismanage a lot of things. The 30 Wallon families, along with settlers who came with Verholst, of whom we have no record of, we don't know who they were exactly, but the families and these new settlers were spread all over three different river valleys. First the Hudson River, and the Dutch would have referred to it as the North River, and then the Delaware River, which they called the South River, and then the Connecticut River, which they called the Fresh River. And instead of, like, bundling together into little communities and really building something, what had happened since Veerholz became in charge is everyone just started to scatter. People started to disappear. We don't know what happened to some people. We have no record of what happened. Some people certainly went native. Some people were killed by natives. And there was even conflicts with the Five Nations up in modern-day Albany, New York. The colony was really starting to fall apart. Peter Minuet, who was there not to save the day, not to become the next director, but to do a, a very specific job, he shows up, and of course he is an employee of the company and an official of the company, and he assumes control of the company. Now, we don't know exactly how this happened, whether the council said, hey, you know what, we would like for you to be in charge at least in the meanwhile until we get some word from our bosses back in the Netherlands, or whether Peter, Peter Minuet simply said, you know what, I think I'm going to be in charge now because I'm the highest ranking employee of the company here at the moment. We don't know exactly what happens, but Peter Minuet gives himself a promotion. And he makes himself at least temporary director of the colony. And eventually, the company does hire him officially. And this was a wise move because Minuet is going to be the savior of the colony. Everyone's spread out. They're hundreds of miles apart from each other. People are disappearing. There's chaos all over the place. Minuet makes some very quick, smart moves. When the colony was originally set up by Cornelius May, he spread everybody out to the different river valleys so that other colonial powers could make claims on them and have access to the fur trade. Well, it's not quite working out, because under Veerholz, it all falls apart. Everyone is too spread out. Minuet realizes that. He says, this is too much to maintain. We're too far apart. There's too many different native groups that we're not exactly sure of. We don't have deals with. It's too chaotic to have people this far apart from one another. So he starts bringing the people back in. All right, he's sailing up and down these rivers. He's collecting all these people who are basically refugees of a failed and dying colony, he gathers mostly everybody. He gathers pretty much everyone in the colony, except for the company traders who live at the trading posts, and he relocates them to what's going to be Manhattan Island. And this is right before what certainly would have been a disastrous winter, where everyone might have perished, starved to death, froze to death, was taken in Indian raids. The whole colony would have just relapsed into the anarchy we saw in the 1610s under private traders. Minuet really does save the day at the last second here. And that brings us to perhaps the most Googleable subject about Peter Minuet. And that's going to be the purchase of Manhattan Island. Dun dun dun! So there's a lot of drama about this, a lot of uh, crazy interpretations, a lot of speculation, a lot of people taking sides. It's, it's, a, it's an insane subject to have to deal with, and I'm going to try to deal with it head on 
and I want you to see things from the Native American perspective, from the European perspective, and at the end of this, you're going to realize nobody really got what they wanted out of this deal, and nobody was really cheated. There was no cheating. There was no misrepresentation. It was just complete cultural misunderstanding all around. Now, you may think to yourself, well, this is the beginning of the New York City story, of the beginning of this great immigrant culture and tradition that has thrived for centuries. It all starts here with the Purchase of Manhattan. Not exactly. Again, this episode is going to bring up more questions and conflicts than answers, and that's true for a lot of my episodes, let's be uh, honest here. Well, the first immigrant of non-native origin to end up on Manhattan Island is believed to be a man named Juan Rodriguez. We only know a couple things about Juan Rodriguez. One thing is that he was probably mixed race. He probably had an African mother and a Portuguese father. He may or may not have been a slave for an early Dutch trader coming up and down the Hudson. There seems to have been some use of force, although I don't believe the word slave was used. He's sometimes referred to as a Spaniard, even though that can't be accurate. And during the era before this one, so the 1610s, he was with a private trader. And at a certain point, having learned the native languages of the area some form of Algonquin or a number of forms of Algonquin. He took a bunch of hatchets and jumped ship, ended up on Manhattan Island and was never heard from again. So hopefully he made his way in the world and he was able to use his hatchets to uh, make some sort of life for himself somewhere. Some reports say he jumped ship and ran away. Other reports say the Dutch captain let him go. Because we're in a world right now where if you're a mixed race person with no homeland really to speak of, with the rise of slavery as an institution, and you're in this Atlantic world being dominated by five or six different nations all competing, you really don't have any place to go. So maybe the Dutch sailor took pity on him and said, you know what, you seem to fit in here, you know the languages, here's some supplies, there you go. Or Juan Rodriguez took it upon himself and said, you know what, I don't fit, a, fit in anywhere in this world, maybe I'll fit in best here. So we don't really know, but that was the first non-native immigrant to Manhattan Island. Another thing we do know. The Dutch started building a fort at the very southern tip of Manhattan Island before this deal went down. Before this legendary deal happened, the Dutch already had a little claim on Manhattan Island. Maybe there was an earlier purchase done with the natives. We don't have any paperwork on that. Another thing we don't know. Although we actually have the documentation of the purchase of Manhattan... We assume Peter Minuet was the man who orchestrated the deal, but we don't know that for certain. It was 1626, this crucial year when leadership passed from Verhulst to Minuet. Some writers have speculated that it was under Verhulst's rule that the actual deal went down, whereas most people today have concluded that it was under Minuet's rule as director. Now here's another question. Was Minuet there directly, or did he send a representative there? That is also something we're not exactly sure of. And this is just the Dutch end of everything. Now we get to the native end of everything. We know that Manhattan Island was occupied by more than one tribe. So this single deal with a single leader could not possibly have given you legal rights to all of Manhattan Island. Also, we don't know exactly which tribe that was. We have best guesses, but we don't know exactly who the deal was made with. And as we brought up in a previous episode... There was nobody in a traditional Native American tribe who had a leadership role that gave them the power to peacefully hand over land. That job didn't exist. It's not a thing. In the Native American world, you either came to some sort of agreement with a tribe to be bonded to one another, either in trade or to actually physically merge your tribes over time, and you joined them on their territory, or by force you went in and through warring took over territory. 
there was no peaceful handing over of land. The land came with the people. And if you wanted the land without the people, war was how you were going to achieve it. The idea of just buying land was not a thing that was done. And so the Native Americans didn't have a guy in their tribe who would have the ability, the legal right according to their own law and culture, to hand over that land. And the Dutch were very sure to always try to buy land from the natives. They were really big on keeping peace with the natives, at least at first. And when the English roll in eventually, they're going to nullify all these treaties and say, Native Americans, they don't even know what owning land is. These treaties mean nothing. And now we're getting into rumors and legends that say that Peter Minuet bought Manhattan Island for $24 or $30. The figure always changes, and it's always a trivial small amount. This, this is a legend that goes back 100 years or so. The actual purchase amount was for 60 guilders of metal goods. So metal goods being little little metal uh, jewelry and shiny objects and hatchets and other sorts of useful metal objects that came to the amount of 60 guilders in the Netherlands at the time. Which, if you, if you do the math and you look at the figures and what other people say, might be around $1,000 today. So all of Manhattan Island was sold for $1,000. Even that sounds like next to nothing. Well, it's just not that simple, is it? It's never that simple with this podcast. So I'm going to complicate the matter for you right now. So first of all, you might be thinking, wow, the Native Americans got ripped off. And again, I've brought this, this subject up before. You're thinking of this deal from the European point of view. You're being, you're being small-minded, and you're assuming the Native Americans are ignorant of what's going on here. And um, they might not know what's going on totally, but as you're going to hear, neither do the Dutch. Neither of them know exactly what's happening here. So that amount, $1,000 or 60 guilders, well, first of all, the, the, the latest historians, the most, the most recent research is saying that the tribe that sold Manhattan to Peter Minuet was not in charge or in control of most of that island. So let's look at this from the Native American perspective. You got useful metal goods for which you cannot make or manufacture yet. And in return, you sold Peter Minuet, mostly territory that you didn't control anyway. So that's like me selling my neighbor's house. Well, if I can get away with it, that's a pretty good deal for me. So from the Native American point of view, they got useful metal objects for territory they weren't even in control of. That being said, maybe they didn't even understand what was going on at the time and the scope of how much land Peter Minuet was planning on claiming for the Dutch West India Company. And if you're going by the pop history notions of the time, you would think, oh, Peter Minuet, after this deal was made, forced all the natives off the island... And the natives have no idea what was even happening and no concept of land ownership. Duh, the record doesn't really show that. It shows for decades afterwards, there were Native Americans living on the island. Not part of New Amsterdam, the city, just living on different parts of the island that New Amsterdam had not grown into yet. And there's a reference, although I can't find it now among my notes, but I believe it's in Russell Shorto's um, Island at the Center of the World, where he mentions that the Native Americans, they were on the island decades after this deal went down. And often the leaders on the island would just tell people, yeah, let them camp out on your farms, you know, get to know them, talk to them, this, that, and the other thing. So if you consider what both Native American groups and the Europeans would have interpreted from this deal, it seems like the Dutch actually didn't get what they wanted, but at least at first the natives did. So let's say they thought of this deal as being a commingling of cultures. The Dutch are going to move in, and they're going to live amongst the Native Americans, and the two groups will know each other and trade with one, one another peacefully. Well, initially, that's exactly what happened. So instead of thinking of the purchase of Manhattan as being, oh, we're going to steal Manhattan from these natives and give them a bunch of metal trinkets worth almost nothing, what actually happened is the Dutch thought they bought the land, but they didn't really, because the natives didn't leave. And the natives ended up having peaceful trading relations 
with the Europeans and existing in relatively close quarters to one another. So at least initially in the first couple decades after this deal goes down, it goes down the Native American way. It doesn't go down the European way. So you can just throw all those notions right out the window. That whole story about Peter Minuet stealing the land from the natives, it just it doesn't work out. If you look at the history, it's not there. In fact, it's the other way around. Peter Minuet was kind of swindled into accepting Native American notions of, of group movements and uh, living situations. So Minuet's going to move most of the colony's population to this one island. He's going to take them down from the Hudson and the Connecticut River and the Delaware River, empty them out, everyone except the traders, leave a, company, a couple company traders at the different forts, and then most of that Walloon population and any more farmers that came over with Fearholst, they're going to be, boom, right there on Manhattan Island. So by 1628, Manhattan Island has about 270 people on it. Meanwhile, the whole colony altogether is only going to have about 300 people. And we still have the receipt for the sale of Manhattan. It was given to the Dutch West India Company. I'm going to read it right now, and I'm going to change my voice so it sounds kind of spooky. November 7th, 1626. High and mighty lords, yesterday the ship, the arms of Amsterdam, arrived here. It sailed from New Netherland, out of the river Mauritius, on the 23rd of September. They report that our people are in good spirit and live in peace. The women have also borne some children there. They have purchased the island of Manhattan from the Indians for a value of 60 guilders. It's 11,000 morgans in size. They have had all their grain sowed by the middle of May and reaped by the middle of August. They sent samples of these summer grains, wheat, rye, barley, oats, buckwheat, canary seed, beans, and flax. The cargo of the aforesaid ship is 7,246 beaver skins, 178 and a half otter skins, 675 otter skins, 48 mink skins, 36 lynx skins, 33 minks, 34 muskrat skins, many oak timbers and nutwood. Herein, high and mighty lords, be commended to the mercy of the Almighty in Amsterdam, the 5th of November in the year 1626. Your high and mightiness obedient, P. Shagen. And with that, we have the legal foundation for New Amsterdam, a city that will be renamed New York City. And this, like I said, saves the colony. Everyone's together now, everyone's safe, there's organization, there's rule of law. Everything is better now than it was under Veerholst. Now, maybe he's not to blame for all of this, because we talked about in the last episode what an epic failure he is. And we're talking about in this episode how Peter Minuet just runs in and saves the day. But maybe if we go back to the first director general, or the first director, maybe they didn't have that term yet, May, Cornelius May, the guy who set everybody up and spread everybody out along those rivers, maybe he was too ambitious. Maybe he thought more settlers were going to come in than what actually happened. So he's the one that spread everybody out. Maybe he's to blame for some of this, although a lot of people don't blame him. They put all the weight on Veerholst. But maybe we can spread that around a little bit. It's funny to think about now, but if you look back at the contract we just read, the, the purchase of Manhattan, it mentioned lynx skins and, and mink skins and these all, all these other sorts of trivial things that you think wouldn't be on the same document as the purchase of Manhattan Island. Well, for us, that's New York City. That's the headquarters of the United Nations and the largest stock market in the world. But to them, it was important, but not as much important as making money on the on the beaver skins and the other skins and the, and the trading in general. They didn't know this was going to become New York City. They couldn't have possibly have known. So this purchase is almost more important to us than it ever was to them. Now we're going to switch subjects because I'm, I'm an upstate New York guy, right? I don't, I live in New York. I care about Manhattan, but my world's upstate New York. It's going to be in this story, 
Beverwick, Fort Orange, Rensselaerwick, the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois, the Five Nations, all these people. All this stuff is my world. So now we're going to go up the Hudson River, and we're going to talk about when the Dutch and the Five Nations finally make an alliance together. And this alliance is going to be very important. If not for this alliance, the French would have been solidly established in western New York. The English would have overrun the Hudson River eventually, and there probably wouldn't be a New York state today. Massachusetts and Connecticut would probably run straight to the Hudson River at least. The whole, my whole world would look completely different, and the situations that went into me being born wouldn't exist. So I wouldn't exist if not for this treaty and all the history that comes after it. Now, talking about this moment where the Dutch and the Iroquois finally come together, there is a lot of debate over when exactly the first treaty was made. Now, I know on this podcast, I never seem to answer any questions, and every time I attempt to, I bring up like three or four more. That's just the nature of the beast. So Iroquois and Mohawk oral tradition claim that there was a treaty made with the Dutch as early as 1613 or 1619, sometime in there. And yet the earliest recorded treaties we have with the Dutch on the Dutch end of the business is in the 1620s, late 1620s. Historians tend to reject the theory that the oral tradition has of an earlier treaty in the 1610s. Uh, one, one simple piece of evidence to bring up is Creek and Beaks War, the part of the Mohawk-Mohegan War where the general of Fort Orange, the commander at Fort Orange rather, was led away with the Mohegan on an expedition against the Mohawk. We've talked about this one before. So the fact that around 1624, 25, 26, the Dutch are actually warring with the Mohegan against the Mohawk kind of could be some circumstantial evidence that there was no treaty between these two groups. Another little piece of evidence to consider is that for much of this early history, which we've covered so far, there would have been no one on the Hudson River who would have had the legal power in the Netherlands to create a treaty with the Mohawk. They just wouldn't have existed. Much like how inside of Native American tribes, you don't have an individual with the power to give land away on behalf of the entire tribe. The Dutch, likewise, these early fur traders, would not have had the authority, by and large, to make such a treaty on behalf of the States General in the Netherlands. So any treaty before the time we're about to talk about is considered folklore, mystery, it's in the mists, who knows what was happening, who knows what arrangements were actually made, who knows who actually talked to who, it's all a big old mystery. If you remember from our last episode on the Haudenosaunee, the Mohawk had just won a great victory against the Mohegan, pushing them to the other side of the Hudson River, to the east side. And now Fort Orange, the trading post where all the furs were supposed to come from the interior of the continent to the Dutch traders, is surrounded and encapsulated inside of Mohawk territory. The Mohawks now have a monopoly on access to the fort. So the Dutch and the Mohawk come together and they establish a trading treaty with one another. Of course, the Dutch would have understood this as you bring me beaver pelts, I give you things you don't have access to. And then the Mohawk understood it on a little deeper level. Where in the Native American world, if you're trading with someone, you're also opening up a relationship. It's not just an exchange of goods and we go our separate ways. We're also establishing that I'm giving you this, you're giving me that. We are friends. We trade with one another. We are potentially allies. I can rely on you if push comes to shove. It's the opening up of some kind of deeper relationship that the Dutch traders simply didn't have any sort of concept of. So the Mohawk were starting to bring, at least at first, a lot of people have argued, starting to bring the Dutch into the Haudenosaunee, the Five Nations. They were starting to incorporate the Dutch, the very small number at Fort Orange, into their larger confederation. Very quickly, though, 
the Mohawk and the other Iroquois realize that these Dutch people, much like the French, they really don't understand what the Iroquois would have referred to as manners. They don't understand how to be a proper person existing inside of this political and governmental alliance. They don't, un- they don't know what a condolence ceremony is. We call, you know, the, the Dutch and the Iroquois would call each other brothers. Well, at least the Iroquois would call them brothers. And the Dutch just didn't seem to reciprocate in the same ways. The Iroquois would go to Fort Orange and they would be treated like strangers rather than relatives, which is what they were trying to be with one another. So the Mohawk real- realized very early on, okay, these people are never going to be full members of the Confederacy. They just don't understand how things work. And it's true, the Dutch didn't understand Iroquois politics, culture, the clan systems, the, the language even. There was still quite a bit of a language barrier there. They knew enough of each other's languages to trade and have basic conversations, but there wasn't a deep understanding of each other's language and history. Not at all, actually. So very quickly, the Iroquois began to adopt an attitude with the Dutch that they call the Two-Row Wampum Treaty, which, again, their oral tradition says this treaty happened a lot earlier, and then historians will date it a little bit later. In the grand scheme of things, we're talking about the same 20-year period. So the two-row wampum treaty basically says, you're going to do your thing, we're going to do our thing, we're friends, we trade, but we're not going to get so close together that we get involved in each other's business, causing conflict. We have different ways of life, and that's okay. So I, you can look up the two-row wampum. It's, it's probably the most famous piece of wampum, of the, famous, the most famous wampum belt out there. It's easily the most famous wampum belt out there other than the Haudenosaunee logo itself, with the, with the five characters connected to one another. So the two-row wampum treaty. And this is because the Dutch, like I said, just don't fit in with the Native Americans. The Mohawk tried, and they found the Dutch to be rude. They don't have the manners. They don't have the hospitality. We're going to see in a future episode when a, Dutch, a young Dutchman goes off into Mohawk territory, and we're going to see what Iroquois hospitality looks like. And it's quite different than the hospitality the Dutch are giving to the Iroquois. So when the Iroquois showed up, they're treated like strangers and possible threats. And we're going to see when the Dutch show up in Iroquois territory, they're treated like family. They, you know, they pull, pull, pull up a chair, you know, have a meal. Yeah, this, you can sleep here. You can use this blanket. Very different attitudes. So quickly on, the Mohawk and the rest of the Iroquois decide, okay, we're going to have to keep these people at arm's length. They're our trading partner. They're going to be part of the link in our chain that holds us all together. But they're not going to be a full member of the Haudenosaunee. And maybe they'll never be. And the Dutch had a very similar attitude. If you go to places where the Spanish settled, or the French, or the English, they're always trying to convert the natives. That's always a big theme of theirs. That's a big way they justify taking over areas. Saying, well, we're just trying to introduce them to the ideas of Jesus and offer them salvation. And and so it's okay that we take them over. It's because we're saving their souls. The Dutch weren't interested in that. Not terribly. There were, you know, throughout the decades coming up, there's going to be some murmuring about it and whatnot. But overall, they're there for business. They're going to accept you however you come, as long as you come in peace, and we'll all get along. So the Mohawk and the Iroquois and the Dutch on the other side of this agreement, they both have a very similar mindset, which is, you are who you are, I am who I am, you know, we're really different, we don't really understand each other, but we each have something each other wants, and we can live in peace together. So that's going to be the the origin of this treaty, and this is going to be the, the general feeling of the relations between Europeans and Native Americans for decades to come in the upper Hudson River Valley. And they were able to maintain this because New Netherland never really filled up. So the Native American groups, especially the Haudenosaunee, especially, the other groups we'll talk about later, there's a lot of conflict coming up with the Algonquin groups. But the five nations in what's now western New York 
And then New Netherland, nestled in what's going to be downstate New York all the way up to the Capital District, the Albany area. They weren't close enough that they actually ever came into any conflict with one another. And they never filled up the space with bodies, so they'd be pushing everybody in or out and off their land and whatnot. Never came to that. We don't see those conflicts that you hear about all the time when you learn about early colonial history. Doesn't happen in this situation. In fact, Fort Orange, the meeting point between these two cultures, the link in the chain, there's never going to be a conflict between the Dutch and the Iroquois. Never. It doesn't happen in the entire history of New Netherland. After Crickenbeak's War, once they make this treaty, it is honored all the way to the end. Which is really remarkable if you consider how many times the French, who are very close by, very close to the north to the Haudenosaunee, how many times the two of them came to blows in the same period. In the same 60 or so year period that we're covering in this first season. The, the Dutch and the Mohawk battle it out once. They make a treaty. Total peace. The French and the Mohawk? I, I, have, I have books here that count up the number of accounts. I, I'm not going to bother pulling it out. But I'm going to say two dozen times at least. Two dozen major engagements, at least? I'm not even sure. So really remarkable. Fort Orange is going to be the site of an extreme peace, and a peace that will be carried over to English rule later on. So again, we're setting up the history that's making the world that's around us today. So the Dutch at Fort Orange finally gave the Iroquois steady access to European goods. And like I said, the Mohawk had the monopoly. They surrounded it. They had complete control of everybody coming in and out of Fort Orange who was native in origin. And the furs that were supplied to the Dutch became very important. They became a, a unit of currency, essentially. If you look at old documents at the time and legal documents, things were paid for in beaver pelts. So you might see them denominated, and this happens in different colonies, you might see it denominated in the Dutch currency, or you might see it denominated in English currency. But at this early time, the actual transaction might have been uh, might have been <laughs> committed with uh, beaver pelts. So the beaver pelts were like big furry dollar bills for a long, long time. And then another thing which became a sort of currency is going to be wampum, or as the Dutch called it, suent. Now wampum is made from a shell that's found off the coast of the Atlantic Ocean, which of course the Mohawk and the rest of the five nations don't really have a lot of access to. But now with the Dutch along the Hudson River establishing themselves and establishing outposts at different rivers and at the heads of those rivers and along the coast, they were able to set up a an early trading system that the English will have a version of much later on, sort of early triangular trade, I heard one historian mention, where the Dutch were able to bring the necessary metal tools to make those little tubular beads to Native Americans along the coast of Long Island and elsewhere. And so they were able to trade them the tools. The Native Americans were able to make the beads. The Dutch were able to trade them other metal objects for those beads. Then they were able to take those wampum beads, so perfectly shaped, bring them up the Hudson, and trade them with the Five Nations. Now this is when the Five Nations get access to those nice beads that you see that make those wonderful belts. So, again, in Iroquois tradition, they claim that they had those kinds of beads earlier on than when the Dutch show up. But in the archaeological evidence and the historical evidence, the real presence of wampum belts in that form show up after the Dutch established this treaty with the Mohawk and the rest of the Iroquois. So, again, we see tradition and history are at odds with one another. But the general consensus among historians is that they, the Iroquois had some forms of wampum usually the necklace variety, where you just have it on a little string. You've seen it before, whether you're aware of it or not. But the actual wampum belt design is dependent on metal tools 
and were only accomplished after the Dutch established themselves on the Hudson River. And so wampum, along with beaver furs, became a type of currency. And again, you can find documents where debts are paid in belts of wampum and not silver coins. There's an account, I'll have to dig it up for a uh, future episode, where somebody hands a Mohawk chief, I believe, some silver or gold coins, and he goes, well, what do you want this for? What is this? I don't, I don't want this. I'm, I'll just throw this in a river. He just says, this is nothing to me. This is like skipping a stone. Early on in the 17th century, as much as school often teaches about Europeans pushing their values on people, very early on in North American history, it was the native values that were pushed onto the Europeans because the Europeans were so few in number. As we talked about before, the idea of land ownership, we see in Manhattan, early on at least, the native concept of land ownership predominated. Because the natives didn't leave the island after the deal, and they actually cohabitated to some degree for a very long time. And here we are even with the with the sense of value and currency. It's beaver first coming from the natives, and then suant, or wampum, a product that's mostly native in origin, that are the currency at the time. Whereas coins that even today we would say, oh, that's money, meant nothing on in the North American continent. It, there was very little of it, and it meant nothing to most of the places you would want to trade that money away toward. So, again, here we are in the 17th century, and it's the native values, the native outlook on the world that is dominating, not the European. And the Dutch were happy that they had found this system of creating wampum and bringing it to the Haudenosaunee, because the French didn't. The French had no supply of wampum beads. And so they're, the threat of the five nations, or one of the nations in the five nations, allying with the French, goes way down. Because the Dutch have a commodity that the Iroquois desire, and they're the source of it. So the Mohawk had the monopoly on the furs, at least in the upper Hudson River Valley region. And then the Dutch had the monopoly on the wampum. And that was their trade relationship, at least early on. Now, when I say that the Mohawk had the monopoly on the trade, I mean the Mohawk. It's, it's been documented pretty heavily that the Mohawk controlled the trade to Fort Orange. Not the Iroquois, not the Five Nations, not the Haudenosaunee. It was the Mohawk Nation specifically which meant that even though we're all part of this confederation together, we're all brothers, we're all, you know, related through interlocking clans and this overriding council at Onondaga, you still have to go through Mohawk territory to do the trading. And it's been documented that the Mohawk basically preferred if, let's say, the Seneca had some furs to trade. They would prefer that the Senecas traded it to the Mohawk, and then the Mohawk traded it to the Dutch. And so the Mohawk would get, they'd get more because they were the middleman. They'd give the Seneca only so much, and then they would get more from the Dutch. And so the other nations, they're going to find this as a point of friction for decades to come. So while there is a, a lasting peace at Fort Orange, there's rumors in the, the distant future from the timeline we're in right now, the 1620s, there are rumors and legends of wars inside of the Haudenosaunee. And we're going to get to that in an upcoming episode. So as much as the contact with the Dutch would solidify the power of the Five Nations, especially against the French, it's going to cause friction inside of the League, between the nations, who again are independent. They're in a confederacy, but they choose to be in that confederacy. It's not one state. It's five states acting together. And Fort Orange is going to cause some friction between those states. Luckily for the Dutch, though, the English were often not aware of this because the Haudenosaunee, and especially the Mohawk, being so feared by Algonquin peoples, the Haudenosaunee will often be used by the Dutch 
to help scare away the English from their incursions. Remember, the Dutch are going to be very few in number. By 1664 or so, there's going to be 10,000 people in New Netherland of non-native origin. Meanwhile, there's going to be uh, you know, 10 times the amount of English people between the east and the south of them. So often the Dutch will, will very subtly mention the natives in the area and the alliances between them. And the Mohawk especially will be the, the unknown, the threat the Dutch could always throw into the English faces. Oh, you don't, you don't, no, 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 you don't want to settle over here. You don't want to get involved in this area. Have you heard about the Mohawk? You know what they're all about? Yeah, you better stay away from us. They're, they're, they're trouble. So in our very short episode, we have created stability in the realm that this podcast has already covered. The Mohawk and the Iroquois, who, have be, who were becoming slowly and slowly more irrelevant as the French were building trade relations all around them and boxing them out, now have access to European goods, and now they're going to be on the rise. Meanwhile, the Dutch will have the threat of the Iroquois to protect them from the English, and they will have a steady supply of beaver pelts. And now, our two subjects that we've been covering, the Haudenosaunee and New Netherland, they're both stabilized. And now we're going to have a chance for growth on both ends. And these two sides are going to work together, their treaty is going to last, and the two are going to thrive for a long while. And it really hurts my heart to think about how, as a social studies teacher, at least in the New York State high school curriculum, everything I've talked about so far, I've done like five and a half, six hours of podcasting, all of this is in the New York State curriculum, it just just a little little tiny blips, just a little bit of bits of nothing as far as the U.S. history and government class is concerned in high school. I mean, everything I've talked about in the last six hours would occupy probably less than a half an hour of a class. And as far as it's showing up on a New York State history regents, maybe one question on New Netherland or the Haudenosaunee every three, four years. I don't know. It's very small. So yeah, it hurts my heart to think about all these stories and people and interesting things that have happened. And it's just glanced over so quickly in, uh, in high school. But it, you know, it has to be that way. We can't teach every single thing that's ever happened ever, but that's what this podcast is for. So this has been another exciting edition of the other States of America history podcast. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening.